Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So 1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 6. And the word of the Sovereign Lord reads, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the word of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is, the, is a value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. This is the word of the Lord. The late Jerry Bridges in his book once wrote, The practice of godliness is an exercise or discipline that focuses upon God. From this Godward attitude arises the character and conduct that we usually think of as, as godliness. Well, so I want to welcome you back to our series titled First Timothy, God's Plan for Church and Life. And in this series, we have been taking a, an up-close biblical look at what the Bible has to say about the church. Because the truth be told, it seems like everybody in the entire world has an opinion about the church. Everyone has some kind of vision of what they think the church is and what they think the church is supposed to be. Even non-believers, those who don't have a relationship with Christ, even atheists have an opinion about the church, about what the church is, what the church is for, and what the church is to do. There are lots of opinions about the church. And by the way, most of them are wrong. And even... This goes for those who might even profess Christ as their Savior. Many people who say they follow Jesus have an unbiblical, unhealthy view of the church. And what is worse is many of these people are actually famous people and have written lots of books and have huge influence in the world around us and even in Christian circles. And so it is absolutely fitting that we as a church, since we are growing together as a church family, that we come to the Bible and ask you know, for the Lord to sharpen our understanding of this God-given institution that we call the church, an institution that we all, if we are in Christ, are called to be a part of. And the first letter of Timothy is a great resource for us to walk through because it is a clear picture that Paul paints for us of what the church is and what the purpose of the church is and the mission of the church and what all of this means for us individually. And so far, we have covered a lot of ground. We've talked about a lot of stuff. And in fact, most of that's the context for what we're going to talk about today. The thing that we need to remember is that Paul was on his, after his first imprisonment in Rome, was released and Timothy and him went about going to visit the churches that they had ministered to before. And they stopped in Ephesus and they reached the church that, uh, that Paul had founded there. And what they discovered is that this church was in trouble because it had slipped off of its theological foundation and was beginning to go astray. And so Paul, who had the other places to visit, left Timothy there to put things right. And so Paul writes this letter to him, giving him clear instructions of the things he needs to do. And the first thing he had to do was put an end to the false teaching and discipline the false teachers in the church, which is what we saw in chapter 1. And then... 
he had to deal with the behavioral problems in the church, which we saw in chapter 2. And then Paul walked Timothy through the qualifications for church leaders, for both the elders and the deacons, in order to strengthen the church leadership so the church had stability. Right? Because that's really the heart of the issue. Unqualified men were allowed to take up leadership in the church, especially the preaching and teaching ministry of the church, and they begin to introduce false teachings and false ideas. And the result of that is the church began to slip off of its doctrinal foundation, and the members of the church, in turn, began to behave in ways that were contrary to the Word of God. Because as we said, as we saw in chapter 3, there is, in fact, an expectation from God in how the members of the church are to behave and to live in and as the church. And the reason for that is because the church is God's. It is His family. It is His institution. And we have all been called to be a part of that, not to mention... Again, we have been called to be His children. And on top of that, the church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. The church is the God-given instrument that He has ordained for the world to declare and to defend the gospel of Christ and the doctrines of the faith. The church is to be the immovable support in the world that supports the truth and upholds and declares the truth for all the world to see. Right? And what gives the church its stability is the church's gospel confession. Right or creeds. The church is the hope of the world, and because of that, it is the protector and the proclaimer of the truth. That is what the church is and what it's supposed to be. But then beginning in chapter 4, Paul warns Timothy that in spite of all of this, there will be people who profess to be Christians who seem to be part of the church who just simply will abandon the faith. They will abandon the orthodox doctrines and teachings of the church. They will be led away by false teachers of the church. They will fall for the teachings that seem like truth to them. And these people will seem like true Christians until they reveal that they're not by departing from the orthodox historic Christian faith that has been handed down by the apostles through the scriptures. And that right there, by the way, is the context that Paul writes to Timothy in what we, what we see in the, next in the text. You see, the, the text that we have before us today, Paul is going to prescribe for Timothy how, as a leader of the congregation, how he is to discourage false teaching that tends to slowly sneak in and infect, infect the church and lead people astray. And the way that he's to do that is through what I like to call doctrines and deeds. Or in other words, it is through the faithful teaching of the truth of God's Word and also through living a godly life. Timothy is to discourage false teaching from taking root in the church by preaching the Word of God and by pursuing godliness in his own life. That's the twofold method that he wants Timothy to use to prevent false teaching. And by the way, those are the two major themes that we're going to see throughout this text today. Preaching the Word and pursuing godliness. So turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4. In verse 6, Paul writes, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ, being trained in the word of the faith and, in a, and of the good doctrine that you have followed. The first thing that we need to see is that Paul talks about how to discourage false teaching is by Timothy serving up the word of God. And I intentionally word it this way. 
I intentionally use the expression serve up for a couple of reasons. Number one, when Paul says put these things before the brothers, what does he mean by these things? What he means by these things is the contents of this letter, the truths that he has written down right, by the power of the Holy Spirit that he's communicating to, to him and to the church. The truths about the church and the truths about the gospel. These are the things that Timothy are to put before the members of the church, which, by the way, is implied by the word brother. Right? When he says brother, he means the members of the church, male and female. That by right, that's, that's the use that they had at the, at the time. That word brother meant people who were gathered together in a religious family. Now what you need to understand is the verb that Paul uses here that we translate as put before in the Greek means to, to lay out or to lay before. And subtly, this word brings with it the idea of a servant laying out food before others. That's the, the underlying idea here. Placing food before other people so that they can eat. That's the idea that Paul is communicating to Timothy. He is to serve up to the congregation the food of God's Word. And this, this is further emphasized by Paul's use of the word servant. Paul says, if you put these things... Or if you lay these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. And, and this word servant is from the Greek word, as we've been talking about before, diakonos, which is the word we get deacon from, right? We've talked about that before. But Paul, he's not saying that if you will do these things, you will be a good deacon of Christ. Paul is speaking actually more generically of the word's function. He's speaking more of a servant, or as the word customarily was used at that time, a waiter. Because what, what, what do waiters do? What is it that waiters do? They bring food to the table and they lay it out. They place it before other people. That's what Paul is telling Timothy to do. He's to take the word of God and the doctrines of the church and he's to continually be laying them out for them. The members of the church, he's to, to feed them. He's to continually present the body of Christ, the truth of God's word, so that they may partake and eat of it and be nourished spiritually and grow to maturity. This is the clearest analogy of the function of the pastor in every church in the entire world, by the way. A pastor's job is to present to the church the Word of God. A pastor's job is to feed the congregation. And understand what this means. It means that the pastor's job is not to entertain the members of the church. It's not part of the job description. It is not a pastor's job to be culturally relevant in his preaching or teaching. It is not the pastor's job to be well-liked by everyone around them. It is the pastor's job to bring out the food of God's words and place it before you so that you may eat and so that you may grow. And understand, in a world that's lost sight of that, we see a lot of pastors who sit around thinking about how they can make people who don't like God's word to like it enough that they might try it. They think, how can I get people who choke on God's Word, how can I get them to eat it? How can I, how can I take this spiritual food and season it enough to make it palatable for those who, who gag on it and for those who will just simply refuse it? 
And what happens is then when pastors, instead of being the waiter, suddenly decide they want to become the chef. And so they set about asking, how do I make this taste better for the masses? Well, let's just take a little bit of this bitter stuff out of there, like sin and hell and repentance and the wrath of God. And, and then let's just sprinkle some of the sugar of God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life no matter what. Or how about we spice it up with a little bit of prosperity gospel, you know, because we'll just tell people that God wants them to be healthy, wealthy, and happy all the time. Right? And then we add in a little touch of, you know, sexual sin really isn't that big of a deal because God whispers about sexual sin, but he shouts about things like, like greed. And let's add a, you know, a heaping helping of a loud worship band that sings songs that are obscure in their lyrics just enough so they really can't tell where we are theologically. And then let's, then let's take this food and reconstitute it in some way to make it palatable for, for people who really are not wanting this. But that's not the pastor's job, by the way. There's only one chef. There's only one cook. There's only one who produces the food that we need, and that is God. And I want you to understand, it is He that knows what you need. I can't tell you how many times I've preached a message where I'm just doing the best I can to expose the text, and somebody said, that's exactly what I needed to hear today. And they, they heard something in the text that I didn't even really intend for them to hear, but it's exactly what they needed. Why? It's because God is the author and the one who knows what we need. God is the one who knows that will satisfy your soul. God is the one who knows what's best for you. As a pastor, I will always do my best to counsel people and love on them and help to point them in the right direction, but I don't always know what's best for you. That's why I'm always going to point you back to the Scriptures and to God. And He knows what will bring life to you. He's the one that knows. A pastor cannot add anything to the food of God's Word except to poison it. A pastor's job is not to cook the meal. A pastor's job is to take it and serve it up to you and to serve it up faithfully and continually, that is what he is to do, and that is all he can do. A pastor, as a pastor, I can't make you like it. Right? I can't make you like the Word of God. All I can do is share it with you. I can't make you accept it. Right? You will either accept the Word of God or you won't. It is not my ability to make you accept it. And I darn sure can't make you consume it so that it becomes part of you. There are lots of people who hear the word and, and say, man, that was a great sermon, and then they leave here like they've never heard anything. Again, I can't make people take it and consume it. All I can do is work really hard to not mess it up. That's really the biggest job a pastor has, is, is to, to work hard enough not to get in the way of God. Right? In fact, that's... yes. That's been my prayer since I became the pastor here is, Lord, help me to get out of your way. Right? Help me to be prepared enough that I'm not a distraction to you. Right? All I can do is serve up the Word of God and bring it to that you may consume it. But the rest then is up to you. All a pastor can do is simply serve the Word of God to the church to take, to, to take the, the, the text and to preach it faithfully and passionately. And this is, this is why, by the way, I love expository preaching so much. There's a time where I preached a lot of topical stuff, but I became convicted after listening to other great preachers that I should be preaching through the books of the Bible, you know, one verse at a time, because by, by preaching the text, I'm not picking topics. I'm just preaching what comes up in the text and dealing with the issues that pop up at the right time. And by the way, 
I've never, it's amazing to me how many people say, that's exactly the topic I needed to hear about today. And it just happened to be the text that we were in. I don't pick and choose the topics I preach. I just simply read the next text and then share with you through exposition what it says, which means we talk and deal with the issues that are in the right season. The pastor's job is to be a waiter and serve up the spiritual food of God's word. But again, notice Paul says, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ. And it's important that we see here. I mean, because the truth is, every one of you knows that I love you, but I want you to see this. This is something critical that you have to see as a, as a member of this church and our congregation. Notice that Paul doesn't say that you will be a good servant of the people or a good servant of the church. Why is that? Because a pastor or an elder's primary service is to Christ. A pastor's duty is not primarily about the people in the church. It's about honoring and glorifying Christ. Christ is the one that the pastor is to aim to please, not the people. By the way, when a pastor seeks to become a people pleaser rather than a Christ pleaser, he is in trouble. He might end up with a really huge congregation, and he might become really, really famous and write a lot of books, and he might even become eventually rich, but at one point he will stand before God and he will be accountable, held accountable for his ministry. Woe to preachers who become people pleasers. In fact, Paul himself says in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, he confronts them, right? He goes right after them. He doesn't even say nice things in the beginning of the letter. He kind of punches them in the mouth and tells them, what's wrong with you, right? And then he says, "For am I seeking to the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please, uh, try to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. The pastor's aim must be to please Christ through his service. It is his aim to glorify him and be faithful to His Word. And the way that, that, that pastors are called to serve Christ is to faithfully place before the congregation the unadulterated, unchanged Word of the living God. That is His job. But how? How is a pastor to be able to do this? Because it's a big and lofty task, and I'm going to tell you right now, it, it, it would be a lot easier to just pick out some Bible verses and put together a, a, um, uh, an uplifting message and just give you a pep talk and send you out smiling. That's easier. It would be easy to do that, right? You just tell everybody that God loves them and, you know, just go be happy, and then, and then that's it. And, and guess what? That would be an easy way to live, but, but that's not what we're called to. So how does a pastor do this? This is... A huge responsibility. Well, Paul actually prescribes an answer of how he is to do this. He says, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Paul is telling Timothy that he is to be prepared to serve the Word of God, and the way that he is to do so is by being trained in the words of the faith and the good doctrines. Now, what you might be able to kind of get an idea of what he's getting at, get a sense of what Paul is talking about here, but the problem is, is this expression being trained in the English language really misses a couple of really, very important ideas. Number one, the Greek word is present tense. 
right? Not past tense. It's not ED, like in the past tense, like the English conveys. And what this means is that Timothy is not simply to be trained up for the task in the past, but rather he is right now to be trained for this. It's the idea of ongoing training. And this is crucial, right? Effective church leadership through the teaching and the preaching of the word requires ongoing training. Pastors are to be training and learning and educating themselves continually. That is what Paul is referring to here. But, but even that expression still misses what, what Paul is saying. The word actually for being trained right, or training is actually made up of two root words. Timothy is, is basically saying literally that, that, they, that he is to be nourished on. That's the two words. It's to nourish on something. So quite literally, Timothy is to continually to be nourished on the words of the faith and the good doctrines. You see, what Paul is trying to help him see is before the pastor feeds the congregation the Word of God, he must be nourished on it himself. Again, the word is present tense, which means it's an ongoing idea. And this helps us understand that pastors are to be engaged in ongoing, in-depth study of the Word of God. He is to be committed to his, to his continuing education and continuing study of the Word of God and the doctrines of the faith. He is to continually study and show himself approved. He is to take and study the Word of God so that he now has the ability and the strength to serve it up to the members that God has entrusted to him. This, by the way, is exactly why deacons and church leaders and volunteers are so important to the church because the practical needs of the church, as we saw in Acts, can become so overwhelming and taxing that pastors don't have time to read and to study and to meditate on the Word and pray. This, by the way, is what's happening across America, by the way. No wonder churches are theologically anemic and pastors are signing up for services to basically download and buy and, and preach somebody else's sermons that they'd have no investment in. Pastors are sacrificing their time feeding themselves in order to meet practical needs of the church. This tr the truth is pastors cannot give out of an emptiness that they have. They cannot give out of what they don't have. They must only give out of the abundance that they have. A pastor who is starved of the Word of God cannot effectively feed the sheep. He must continually nourish himself by studying and praying. And notice that what Paul says, and Timothy is to be training and studying the words of our faith, which is the Word of God, and the good doctrines that he was taught to follow. He is to be continually nourishing himself on the Word of God and the doctrines or teachings of the church. And this right here, I hope, should end the debate. As we've seen over and over again in 1 Timothy, doctrine matters. Theology matters. It's a recurring theme throughout the entire letter we've seen. In fact, there was a young woman who is a famous person. Uh, she was part of the, the Disney Channel when she was younger and... Um, and she's been all over social media, you know, talking about her faith that she's come to. And, and she's gained a really wide audience. It's really dangerous when famous people become new Christians and suddenly they get this wide audience and suddenly they're appealed to as experts. 
right? But she does these little little Bible devotions, you know, and, and you can tell that she's really digging in and reading the Bible, but she lacks the theological foundation, the, the doctrinal foundation to understand the Bible, and it shows. In fact, this last week, I saw a short video where she was basically reading the Scriptures, and she was doing so out of, a, out of context, and she said, because of that, I must reject the doctrine of the Trinity. She's like, there's no way that she said the Bible does not teach the doctrine of the Trinity. And she explained how, from her perspective, that was. And what she demonstrated simply was that she just simply does not, don't know, how to, does not know how to handle the Word of, uh, of God. And she doesn't have a doctrinal understanding of what the Trinity is anyway, because she was really rejecting a false notion of the Trinity. Right? All she's doing is proving is that she may not be truly a Christian. This is why, by the way, two weeks ago, we talked about the importance of, of orthodox doctrines of our faith, the essential things that we must hold to to really be considered brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why the creeds and the confessions and the statements of faith are so important. And that's why we must study these things as well as the Word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. Right? And that's what Paul is saying here. Pastors are to study the Word of God and the doctrines of the faith so they can be nourished enough and have the strength enough to feed God's people. In fact. A pastor's ability to feed the flock is directly proportional to his ability to continually feed himself. This, by the way, is why I get frustrated why so many people in America, in the American church, buy this idea that the best kind of pastor or teacher is this bivocational preacher. Now, sometimes it's necessary, but there are a lot of people who think that that's really the best way to do it. That a pastor has a full-time job outside of the ministry, and then he gives his leftover time to the ministry itself. And many churches offer that simply because they just don't have to spend so much money on the, on the pastor's salary. They don't have to come up with so much money to support him. Right? Because so many people feel it's better for a pastor to make his living somewhere else than rather than preaching the gospel. Now, Paul not only will address that faulty attitude later on in this letter, he will actually address that issue. But it's simply a surefire way for a pastor and for a church to fail in some fashion. Because the truth is, it takes time to prepare to minister to God's people. Okay? I was in Mammoth with the kids you know, this whole week. Like I said, I was, I was preaching you know, little messages three times a day, but I still had to carve out time to prepare for this message. I had to carve out time to read the, the Word and to look at the original language and to read commentaries and to make outlines and then double-check myself. In fact... You know, I spent most of Friday, because Friday was the free time day for the kids, I spent the most day Friday working on this and then came home and spent, you know, time on it again and was here at four, I mean, at five o'clock in the morning working on it. It takes time, right? And if, if, and, and for that to happen, if a pastor is a bivocational pastor, someone's getting shortchanged. Either it's the congregation or worse, it's his family. Either way, someone's being sold short. A pastor must have the time to feed himself and feed the church. And then, the Paul, then Paul goes on and says, he must reject false teaching. And notice he says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. And the, the word that Paul uses here for myths is the word mythos. So it's obviously the word we get myths from. But the word he's using here doesn't really convey the idea of what we typically think of. When we think of a myth, we typically think of a legend, right? We think of a, a grandiose story about a mythical character. But really that what he's saying here, a myth, the way he's using it, is a false account 
that's posing to be truth, right? It's a falsehood that's disguised as the truth itself. It's simply a false teaching, and Paul says that he is to have nothing to do with it, right? This is a very stern, you know, warning. Have nothing to do with it or reject it outright. Pastors to reject false teaching with impunity, right? We're not to entertain false teaching. We're not to allow them to take root in the church. We are to shut the door on them because false teaching, as Paul has demonstrated, has been devastating to the church. That's why Timothy's there to fix things. And then Paul tells Timothy, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. You see, Paul says the other way to combat false teaching besides preaching the Word of God is to train yourself for godliness. Timothy is to train himself to live a godly life. It's about teaching, and it's about how he lives as an example. Timothy is literally to pursue godliness. Well, what is this godliness that Paul is talking about here? Because it seems like, like the church, everybody has an idea about it. It's, it's really kind of a nebulous idea that many people have you know, differing kind of opinions on it. Some people think that godliness is just obeying all the rules and never making any mistakes. That's how some people see that. Other people say it's just simply an attitude. It's just the way how you feel. But what is this godliness that he's referring to? Well, the late Jerry Bridges has this to say about godliness. Godliness is a devotion to God which results in a life that is pleasing to Him. I'm going to say that again. Godliness is a devotion to God that results in a life that's pleasing to Him. You see, godliness is a life of devotion toward God. It is a life that pays homage to God. It is a life that's lived in reverence toward God. That's what it is. So really, godliness is just really a life of worship. You see, the focus of godliness or living a godly life is the root word, God. It's a life that is lived with God at the center. A life that's lived trusting in Him completely. It's a life that is focused on Him exclusively. A life that's lived obeying His word. And it's a life that's lived with the aim of glorifying Him continually in all that you do. Godliness is not simply obeying a set of external rules. It's a life that's lived in reverence to God in every possible way. And again, Jerry Bridges adds, godliness is more than Christian character. It covers the totality of the Christian life and provides the foundation upon which character is built. I think it's actually better stated this way or the way that I see it is godliness is the outworking of an inward devotion and commitment to God. That's what godliness is. Godliness is the outworking of an inward devotion and commitment to God. That is what godly behavior is. That's what, that's what a godly life is. It's the outworking. It's the, it's the byproduct of an inward devotion and radical commitment to God. It's simply a life that's focused on Him. A life that's intentionally lived in a way where we look at every situation and we ask the question, how can I best glorify God in this? He 
See, it's not simply about outward behavior, as many people expect. It's about a condition of our heart that loves and cherishes God and wants so badly to glorify Him that leads to right behavior towards God and towards men. Godliness is the outworking of an inward devotion and commitment to God. And Paul tells Timothy that he is to train himself in this kind of godliness. Timothy is to cultivate this attitude in his life through diligent training. Why? Because it's not natural to us. It is not natural to us to take our lives and focus it on something else besides us. That's why he says to train yourself. And what we need to see is the emphasis on the word that Paul uses here that we translate as train. Okay, the word for training in the Greek is not the same word that we used earlier for training in, in, or being trained in the Word of God. Remember, that word means to nourish. The word that he uses here is completely different. It's a completely different word. The word that he uses here in the Greek is what some people say, gymnase or gymnase. Right? It's the same root word that we get the word gym or gymnasium from. It's the same root and the same root idea. Because what's a gym for, right? A gym is for sports and physical training or exercise. Right? And so what this word means in context is to train oneself through rigorous exercise. And what, and what we need to realize is when he uses the word here, he's not referring to someone who just needs a little bit better health. He means not somebody who needs to lose a couple of pounds. This word means to have a focused approach to intense physical discipline. This word is used in the context of Greco-Roman athletics, a serious affair in that part of the culture. And these athletes would train their entire lives, and they would use these rigorous training programs that required all of their commitments. And what Paul is saying is you need to be training and working towards this like you're trying to win a prize. That's the emphasis. Right? You need to train to win. This is not about walking 20 minutes on the treadmill to lose a couple of pounds. This is about training for the Olympics. This is about training you know, to win a championship. This is the kind of training that's focused and all-consuming and rigorous. And this kind of training implies then real committed discipline, the kind of discipline that Paul calls Timothy to in the pursuit of godliness. Again, I'm going to quote Jerry Bridges again. By the way, his book on godliness should be required reading for all Christians. The practice of godliness is an exercise or discipline that focuses on God. From this Godward attitude arises the character and the conduct that we usually think of as godliness. Additionally, uh, pastor and author Jay Adams wrote this. He says, the word discipline has disappeared from our minds, our mouths, our pulpits, and our culture. We hardly know what discipline means in modern American society, and yet there is no other way to attain godliness. Discipline is the path to godliness. Training oneself in godliness requires focused, disciplined effort. It requires training oneself with, with, with great emphasis. And it certainly requires grace and the help of the Holy Spirit. To quote Jerry Bridges again, Godlike character is both the fruit of the Spirit as He works within us and is the result of our personal efforts. We are both 
totally dependent upon His work within us and totally responsible for our own character development. Brothers and sisters, we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. There's not anything you can do to add to your salvation. Nothing. There's nothing that you bring to the equation. As the, as the, uh, the hymn writer uh, wrote, nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross of Christ I cling. It is all God. It is all grace. He did all of the work. He did all for you, the things that you couldn't do for yourself. All you do is simply receive it and accept it by faith. That is it. But understand, if you are saved, if you are called by God, if you are born again, you were called by God to pursue godliness, right? To live a godly life. Remember, in chapter 2, Paul said this. He says, for First of all, then I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And then just a few verses later, he says, I desire that in every place men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also women must adorn themselves in respectable apparel with with modesty and self-control not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess, what? Godliness with good works. There is an expectation from God that if we are in Christ and we have been born again, and if we truly have a new nature, we are a new creation, then we will then by default want to take seriously the pursuit of godliness. And this is the point that Paul is driving at. In fact, I don't know if you realize, but in the, of the 15 times the word godliness is used in the New Testament, 13 of those times are used in 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus. And nine of those times are used in this letter alone. Brothers and sisters, we do not, I think, in our country, spend enough time talking about things that the Bible really emphasizes. Those in Christ, especially those in ministry, are to rigorously disciple them, discipline themselves for godliness. And yes, the Holy Spirit is the agent at work in us, changing us from the inside out. We can do nothing apart from that work. And we are to trust in Him. We are to depend on Him. We are to call on His help. But even then, there's still an expectation for us to work and to labor towards that end to the best of our abilities, that we would engage in an effort to pursue godliness. Pastor and author uh, Kevin DeYoung once wrote, when it comes to growth in godliness, trusting does not put an end to trying. Right? Our trusting in God that changes from the inside out does not remove the requirement that we still try and work and train ourselves in godliness through great effort. In fact, one of the greatest theologians of our time today, worthy of our time to spend time listening to and reading some of his books, D.A. Carson, Donald Carson says this. He says, people do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, that's a phrase worth remembering, apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness or prayer or obedience to scripture or faith and the delight in the Lord, we drift towards compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We drift 
excuse me, we cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we've escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves that we have been liberated. We are to pursue godliness in every part of our lives through grace-driven effort. And yes, we must continually right, be dependent upon God's working inside of us for sure. But we must also be diligently pursue godliness in our own lives, which means we need to make choices. Godliness is living a godly life, a life in reverence toward God, and it requires discipline, training, grace-driven effort. And we all, all of us, are called to pursue that. But why? I just like the Jesus and the grace and the love parts. Why this? Why, why does it have to be hard? Why do we have to work at it? Why should we pursue godliness and train ourselves to live a godly life? That just sounds like way too much work. In fact, that even sounds like legalism to me. And don't give me your legalism. Why must we pursue godliness? Well, Paul answers the question for us here too. He says, train yourself for godliness for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and for the life to come. The reason why we pursue godliness, the reason why we pursue a life of devotion and focused upon God is because there is great value in pursuing and living a godly life. That's what the Word of God says. There's great value in it. This word value is, can actually be translated as beneficial, profitable, useful. Paul is saying that godliness is incredibly beneficial and profitable for you. Pursuing godliness, training yourself in godliness is worth the effort because it is incredibly valuable and beneficial to you in your life. Do you really grasp that? But not only does God living a godly life glorify God, but it benefits you. Why do we forget this? Why do we forget this? Why do we forget that making God the center of our lives and focusing on Him and living in a way that seeks to please Him, right, not only brings Him glory, but in the end benefits us too. There's always a direct correlation between the things that bring God glory and what's good for us. I think that's why our catechism answers the, the question about man's purpose the way that it does. The second question in our Baptist catechism asks, what is the chief end of man? What's the purpose of man? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Notice the connection between God's glory and our joy. Because glorifying God leads to our benefit and our greatest joy. In fact, that's John Piper's ministry all in a nutshell. Desiring God is founded on the idea that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. There is great value in godliness. But notice how Paul frames this. He actually compares this to training in, this, this training in godliness to physical training. He says bodily training is of some value. Now, I've read a lot of commentaries on this um, because some of this is a little bit hard to unpack. But, but some say that Paul was actually being negative about physical training, saying that he looked down on it. 
especially those people who were committed to lifelong physical training. I don't think that's what, what Paul's issue is here. I think Paul is actually, be, he's not being negative about it. I think he's drawing a contrast between something that's physical and visible, right, to something that's spiritual. And he says something like this. He says, something is short-lived as physical training because guess what? Everybody's going to decline and die at some point no matter how much you exercise, right? Something as short-lived as physical training has some value. There's very real value in pursuing physical training. There is real value in the hard work and dedication required to train your body. There's value for this life, and we know it. Hence the multi-billion dollar fitness industry. All right? Because we know that there are health benefits to physical training. People who train their bodies through diet and exercise are generally healthier and feel better than people who don't. I'm, a, I'm still a big guy, but I've been weight training now for well over a year. I have lost some weight, but I have gotten stronger in the process, and I feel better. My joints feel better. I have less pain. The health benefits of physical training are tangible and real benefits. Not to mention physical training also sharpens the mind. You know, when it comes to our football players, they perform drills and we go over plays over and over and over again. Why? So that they can think clearly when they're under stress. It also trains the will. It's through physical training people discover that that their minds can push past the limits of their bodies, that their will is stronger than they might imagine. And physical training brings maturity. As we say in football, you know, football makes men out of boys because it is it's a requirement to be committed. You, it's, it's about learning dedication and hard work and persistence, the things that are required for true maturity. There are lots, and we can go on, right? There are lots of physical benefits from training, from, from, from physical training, and, and we know that. That's why we do it, because there's value in it. But that value, as important as it is, is very limited as compared to spiritual discipline, the spiritual discipline of godliness. Paul says bodily training is of some value, but godliness is of value in every way. Notice the contrast. The physical training is of some value, but godliness is infinitely valuable. <clears throat> this, by the way, ought to bring conviction. I know it has for me. Ought to bring conviction to every, every parent who calls themselves a Christian who is also raising their children to play sports. We see it in the world around us all the time. Parents, because of the value of sports, will drag their kids to every practice, invest thousands of dollars in equipment, drive thousands of miles for practices and games and encourage and coach and discipline their children to play a sport, but won't take 10 minutes to disciple their children in the Lord. We will teach our kids to throw a ball, but we will not teach them to read the Bible. We will force them to go to practice that they don't want to go to, but then we won't have that same kind of commitment when it comes to bringing them to church. We won't give them the choice to keep working at their game, but we will give them the choice whether or not they want to get up in the morning and worship the Lord or stay home and sleep. 
we will do everything in our power to help them be successful to play a game that they will not play for very many years, but we won't take the responsibility to teach our children to follow Christ. The vast majority of kids will not play sports beyond high school, and those who do will still grow old and retire and not play anymore. But 100% of the children that we have will one day stand and face God someday. And then how will it go for them? Striking out a thousand times, a hundred thousand times, losing every possible game is nothing compared to the defeat that they will face when they stand before God truly unprepared. And winning all the games and the championships in the world is nothing compared to the weight of the glory that awaits those who are in Christ. Bodily training is of some value, but godliness, living a life that's reverent towards God, is valuable in every possible way. That means every part of your life, your personal life, your work life, your school life, your family life, your community life, your faith life, every possible conceivable way that you live a life, godliness has great value for Pursuing godliness benefits you in every possible way. And notice Paul says, and as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Godliness is, or living a godly life holds promise for now and the next life. And understand, not only does this hold promise for those who enter the next life and are rewarded for their faithfulness and godliness, but again, he says it's, it holds promise for now. One of the problems with the gospel of easy believism that's being perpetuated in our country is that it always presents the benefits of the gospel as always something in the distant future. It's always about later. You just need to believe in Jesus so you can go to heaven when you die. That's the emphasis. You just need to make a confession of faith. You just need to pray this prayer and your ticket gets punched and now you're headed to heaven you can live your life the rest of the way you want to. No matter what, you don't have to worry anymore. You can live this life however you want to because now you have your fire insurance. But understand our faith is certainly, it is about our eternity with God and, and that is the hope that we are all holding on to for sure. But our faith also is about right here, right now. There is promise in godliness for the next life, but there is also promise for right now, like intimacy with God. If you've experienced intimacy with God in your life, you crave it. And you can't have it when you are just walking in unrepentant sin. Joy. There is great joy when you are in the middle of God's will. Strength for today. Because you need it. You need supernatural strength. Hope in the darkness. Brothers and sisters, a time is coming where you're going to need to depend upon that supernatural hope that only comes from Christ. The promise of God will work all things out for your good. And the privilege, the privilege of being used by God for His glory are all tangible benefits for this life. Living a godly life does have benefit for today for those who glorify God. And it holds promise for the life to come. As we, as we wait, right? the words, well done, good and faithful servant, are the ones we long to hear. For you have been faithful with a little will be given much. And so godliness of great value in this life and that of the next. And in light of this, and in light of that promise that it holds, Paul says this in verse 10. He says, For to this end we 
toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Paul, in in light of the promises of godliness and in light of, of the hope that's found in godliness, he says that we labor and strive. And the word that he uses for labor here doesn't simply just mean go to work. It means to labor to the point of exhaustion. It means to work so hard physically and mentally as to become completely exhausted by the work. And if that were not enough to express the meaning of how, how much he values godliness, he even says that we labor and strive. And the word strive here means to struggle or to fight. This, this word is used in the context of either battles and wars or athletic contests. In other words, you could say it this way. It's to give your all or to leave it all on the field, as we like to say. Paul is committing, communicating the idea that godliness and the promises are so valuable right, to him and those whom he serves that they are completely all in to do whatever it takes to pursue it. They labor to the point of exhaustion. They fight with their, with, with their enemy, our common enemy, in order to live a godly life in order to pursue this godliness. He says, we sell out, in essence, to give our all to live a godly life. Not to be saved, not to make God love us, but for a much greater reason. And that is because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Paul is saying, we do this because our hope Our hope in this life and our hope in the next rests only on the living God. Our faith is completely in Him. Our hope is only on Him because there is no other greater hope in the world. Not in material things because material things will fail you at some point. Not in fame because fame is fleeting. Not in people because people will let you down. Not in your career, because even that can't sustain you long term. And not in your own abilities, because you will fail at some point. God truly is our only hope. Why? Because He is our Savior, is what He says. Because He is the only one who can give us what we need the most. And that is salvation. He is the one who rescues us from sin and the wrath to come. He is the one who takes this pile of dead bones that were dead in sin makes them alive in Christ. God is the one who did for us all the things that we couldn't do for ourselves. Brothers and sisters, you were dead in your sins and your transgressions. You were cut off from God and His life-giving presence, right? A, A relationship you were created to have. And then not only that, you were willfully, willingly in rebellion to Him, hating Him, despising Him, running from Him. And because of that, the wrath of God rested upon you. And not only that, did you deserve to die a physical death, but you, desire, you, de- you deserve the full weight of His justice upon you and to experience His perpetual wrath in hell. And what's worse is you couldn't even fix it. There's nothing you could do. You couldn't be godly enough. You couldn't work hard enough or be sincere enough or devout enough which means you were completely, totally helpless and hopeless. But then the good news is, the Word became flesh, and God came into the world and took on a human nature, becoming fully God and fully man. And in His humanity, He lived the perfect, sinless, righteous life that you were called to live, but you couldn't live. A life that's required for fellowship with God. 
And if that were not enough, then He went and took your place upon the cross and suffered in His body for your sins. He endured for you the full weight of the wrath of God. By His blood, He made atonement for you. And then three days later, He rose again proving that payment was accepted. That He is what He claimed to be, God in the flesh, and that He can do for you all that He said, which is to save you from your sins and God's wrath. And then He calls you not to perform some ritual. He, he calls you not to make a list of do's and don'ts. He calls you not to be religious. He calls you simply to repent and believe the gospel. He calls you to put your hope in Him, put your faith upon Him, because He alone is your Savior. And the moment you do that, the moment, the instant you do that, your sins are wiped clean and you were completely clothed in the righteousness of Christ and made perfect in the sight of God. And you were given as a gift eternal life and the promise of God's presence in your life today forever. That is why Paul says we labor to the point of exhaustion and we strive and fight for godliness because God is worthy of that. Because of what God has done for us, He is worthy of us pursuing a godly life. All of us ought to be all in for Him because He, before the foundation of the world, was all in for us. The song that we sing, What gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? For there is no more for heaven now to give. That's why we all ought to train ourselves for godliness, because He is worth it. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.